Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Psalm 60. This psalm has a fairly lengthy biographical ascription. It says, To the choir master, according to Shushan Iduth, a mictum of David, for instruction, when he strove with Aram Nahariam and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Now, these events are narrated twice in the Bible, the first time in 2 Samuel 8 and then the second time in 1 Chronicles 18. What is interesting is that if you look at all three references, including this one here in Psalm 60, you discover that this victory in the Valley of Salt is attributed once to David, once to Joab, and once to Abishai. I think that is helpful to see. It reminds us to think about purpose and perspective when studying the biblical text. By purpose, I mean, what is the point that the inspired author is pursuing? And by perspective, I mean, from whose point of view is the story being told? Those answers explain these differences. Now, this is the sort of discrepancy I think that first-year university students get very excited about. Internet enthusiasts, as well, will point to this as proof that the Bible contains inconsistencies and contradictions. That is to ignore the normal conventions of speech and historiography. We could say that Churchill defeated Hitler in World War II on D-Day. Or we could say that Eisenhower defeated Rommel on D-Day. Or we could go down another level and speak about unit commander against unit commander. It really depends on what story we're trying to tell. David was the king when this battle happened. So whether he was on the field that day or not, this is ultimately his victory. Joab was the general in charge, and Abishai was the unit commander. In a sense, all of them relied on the Lord that day, and all of them felt the back and forth of the battle out of which this psalm arises. This psalm was written in reflection upon a significant change in the tide of battle. The early verses reflect upon a disaster that is attributed to God's fatherly anger, But then the tide turns. God takes the field on their behalf, and victory is gained. So this is a good psalm when you are standing upon the hinge of fate. It is for when you have learned your lesson, repented of your sin, and felt the return of the Lord's help and favor. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. O God, You have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land a quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You've made your people see hard things. You've given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You've set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. 
In the world of the Bible, everything has meaning and spiritual significance. When David and Joab's army was defeated, they saw in that the fatherly anger of God. Look at verse 1. They say there that God has rejected them, but then they say in verse 5 that we are your beloved ones. Do you see that? This is a psalm for children under discipline. Tim Keller sees it that way. He says, God's anger is that of a father who is unconditionally committed to his children, but because of that is furious at their sin. That is so important to understand. And that is so easy to understand if you are a parent yourself. It is because I love my children that I am capable of being furious at their misbehavior. The sin of the neighborhood kids I see in Walmart bothers me not at all, right? They're not my problem. I feel bad for the poor woman trying to manage them, but it does not make me angry. The sin of my children makes me angry. I see the harm it will do to them and others. I I feel in it the rejection of our family beliefs and values. I want more and better for them, and I will fight with them and strive with them to ensure that they get it. I understand this. And I understood it when I saw it in my own father. Tim Keller goes on to say here, this fatherly anger, full of unfailing love, when understood, is a transforming motivation that makes us willing and able to change. True word. I wanted to please my father, as I'm sure, as I hope, my children want to please me. This is a healthy and appropriate motivation for change. For God's people, change so that they can do the things that please the Lord. The Apostle John spoke about that in 1 John 3.22. He said, we keep his commandment and do what pleases him. That, that's what wise children and, and loving children do. That is what David and Joab realized they need to do. They need to do what pleases the Lord, because without his help, they have no hope against their enemies. But with his help, there is none who can stand against them. God is the main factor in every human contest. That's what we see in verses 6 to 8. God has spoken in his holiness with exultation. I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. That is a picture of the sovereign and ruling Lord. The whole earth is his property. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Moab is my wash basin. Edom is where I cast my shoe at the end of the day. I am God over it all, this passage says. This is the God whose favor determines the battle. David acknowledges that in verses 9 to 12. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. The ascription tells us that 
This was the prayer that turned the tide of battle. Before this prayer, there was only disaster. But after this prayer, victory, advance, and triumph. Plumer says here, It is well when our distresses, personal or national, lead us to the throne of grace and make prayer our frequent business. Yes, I think that is an important takeaway. David and Joab began this battle without ensuring the presence and help of the Lord. They got into the fray only to discover that they fought and struggled alone. God wasn't with them. That realization drove them into prayer. They got right with God, and then they took the field with God at the head of the army. It isn't difficult to transpose this psalm into a New Testament key. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is no less fierce as a result of that. And like David and Joab, we are fools if we face our foe without the presence and favor of the Lord. Friend, if you are feeling pressed and pushed back by the enemy, then go to your Father in prayer. Seek His face. Confess your fault if there is sin in your life. Right? David understood that. He said in Psalm 66, 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Get right with God before you take the field, because with God we shall do valiantly. If the Lord is for us, who can stand against us? Thanks be to God. The RMM plan has us reading two psalms today. So here again the word of the Lord, beginning with the brief ascription and then proceeding to verse 1 of Psalm 61. To the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. It is these words, from the end of the earth I call to you, that leads many scholars to assume that this was a psalm David wrote in exile while running away from Absalom. In Hebrew, the same word is translated earth as land. So it could equally mean from the edge of my land, my country, I cry to you. David is being forced out, and as he flees, he prays to God. I love what Matthew Henry says here. That which separates us from our other comforts should drive us so much the nearer to God, the fountain of all comfort. (laughs) Amen. David is on the run, probably sleeping in a tent or a cave, and still he attends to his devotions. He could be out planning strategy or placing troops with his generals, but instead he is inside, on his face, before the Lord. He is praying, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. David knew where to go for strength, comfort, and rescue. Verse 3, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. If we are correct in understanding the psalm as belonging to the time of his flight from Absalom, 
Then these words show David strengthening himself by remembering God's former works of deliverance on his behalf. So much of religious life revolves around remembering. Do this as often as you eat of it in remembrance of me. Remembering what God has done in the past gives us courage to face challenges that lie ahead. So it is here. Verse 4. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Plumer says here, as God's house on earth was also a type of heaven, there is doubtless a reference to the pleasing hope and solemn purpose he had of spending his eternity in heaven. It may be helpful to remember here that David is uncertain whether he will survive this present battle or not. He is at this point unsure whether to interpret these events as further consequences related to his sins with Bathsheba. He said as much to Abishai in 2 Samuel 16 while fleeing the city. Therefore, the sense of his words here may be that whether he lives or dies, he is certain that because of God's forgiveness, he will in fact dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Either bodily in Jerusalem should he return or spiritually in heaven should he not return. Either way, his ultimate soul desire is secure. Verse 5, For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. David can pray this way without being certain whether the prayer will be answered in his life or in the life of a future son, or both. Calvin says here, there can be no doubt, therefore, that the series of years and even ages of which he speaks extends prospectively to the coming of Christ, closed quote. Verse 7, may he be enthroned forever before God, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him, So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. David's vow was to praise God and to give him the glory for all his previous works of deliverance and for all the heights and privileges he had been raised to. In effect, David had vowed to give God the glory and the gratitude that he was due. That is how people of faith respond to saving grace. Saving grace is always unmerited. Therefore, Old Testament and New, it should not, it cannot result in personal boasting. Rather, it ought to result in gratitude and praise. The Apostle Paul makes that the test of whether or not you have truly understood and apprehended grace. Romans 3.27 Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No! but by the law of faith, 1 Corinthians 1.31. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If your system of faith commends you for your wisdom, your purity, your effort, or your perseverance, then it is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is about receiving what you do not deserve. Therefore, logically, where is boasting? It is excluded in its place. Real believers vow to respond with gratitude, thanksgiving, and 
service. Old Testament and New, this is the duty and delight of true believers. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 